As I said, we are continuing our exploration through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, over the last 17 sermons, we have looked at the first two chapters in Mark. Now, it is important for us at this stage to understand the flow of the book of Mark. We need to get where we are at. It's so vital. You have to keep in mind that Mark is divided in three parts, if, just to refresh your memory. Chapter 1 to chapter 8 effectively gives us the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. From chapter 8 to chapter 10, it will be the journey to Jerusalem. And from chapter 11 to chapter 16, will be Jesus in Jerusalem. We will see the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Mark is structured in three Uh, in those three parts. We are still very much in the first part in the early days, even though we've done 17 sermons, we're just finishing chapter 2. So we are in the part where Jesus is still ministering in Galilee. And in chapter 1, we learned that Jesus is God coming to reign among us. He has come to establish the kingdom of God. And at the heart of chapter, this section from chapter 1 to to, to chapter 8, is those verses in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Let me just read them for you. Uh, they really summarize what's going on at the moment. Uh, entire, indeed, the entire book. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time, the kairos moment, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as we've been going through chapter 1, chapter 2, we've seen that Jesus has set up shop in Capernaum at Peter's house. That's his HQ, we might say, and that's where he is. And we've seen the mission from chapter 1, chapter 2 now growing. Jesus, you know, the mission is just growing. He's been throughout Galilee. He's preached in left, right, and center, is growing. And as Jesus' ministry grows, opposition to Jesus is also growing. We've seen already that the Pharisees are, are, are trying to get at Jesus. The conflict with the Pharisees started in chapter 2, verse 6 there, when Jesus claimed the power to forgive sins. You remember when he healed that paralytic, he, pro- he says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes, the religious leaders, were not very happy with that. And then he got worse at Levi's party. He caused Levi to follow him. And then at Levi's party, he's sitting there with sinners. They are not happy about that. And Jesus then proclaims there. He says in Mark chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, he proclaims there, doesn't it? He says, you know, that he's a great physician. He says, those who are well do not need a doctor. I have come for the unwell, for sinners. They didn't like that. This morning we saw Jesus cross words with them again. The rules about the Sabbath this time, and we looked at that this morning. So what's been going on with all of these issues around fasting, issues around Sabbath, how he's dealing with sinners? They're not very happy, and they're getting really frustrated at Jesus. They almost feel like humiliated by him. Jesus is just defying their authority. And I think, I put myself in the shoes of Pharisees, I'm thinking the worst part I think for them is that when they look at Jesus, he looks like one of them. He's very holy. He, he knows his Bible very well. And yet, Jesus doesn't want anything to do with them. 
in that sense. He's not towing their line. He's not following the rule book they're following. And they look at his amazing power, his authority, his ability to heal. They're thinking, wow. If only this guy understood what we're doing. That's how they're looking at Jesus. They can't deny his divine power. They would love Jesus to join them. But Jesus is not interested. He is calm. Remember, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, 15. This is God himself appearing in human history. The kingdom of God is being manifested in the person of Jesus. He has his own agenda. And now we're going to see the frustration is going to grow. The Pharisees are going to get, they are really, you know, not very happy now. And we'll see the flashpoint now occurs here in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. And this, so that's what this we are looking at. We see them clash with Jesus. And from, when we look at this passage, I just want to draw out three truths. Uh, because this issue is around the Sabbath. Uh, that, that, that they will clash over. And I just want to draw out three truths. They are in your outline from these verses. The first truth we see here in this passage is that all of us want rest. We all want true rest. Now, you see, this morning, as I said, you remember that we left Jesus and the disciples at that confirm in, in, in private to that. Um, well, they've eaten the corn, the disciples, I guess, and they have got new energy, and finally, they were on the way to the synagogue. They have arrived now to, at the synagogue. Let's read verse 1. Again, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue. Let's just pause there and remind ourselves that the synagogue is a local assembly or like this chapel. Uh, it is where Jewish people in Capernaum or other towns gather to worship. Now, we don't know whether Jesus is in Capernaum. Most likely that this is happening in Capernaum. But that's where they gather. They hear the scriptures expounded, just like we are sat here this morning. And we say throughout that Jesus loves synagogues. Because verse 1 starts off by, by saying, again, it's reminding us that Jesus loves being inside the synagogue. Uh, he, he did his first miracle at the synagogue when he drove out the demon, the, the, the man from the, the, the demon, from the demon, well, the demon, he exercised the demon in chapter 1, verse 21. And we've already seen in verse 39 of chapter 1, Jesus go all the way throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons, that's what Mark chapter 1, verse 39 says. So we have to ask ourselves, why is Jesus always in synagogues? Well, he's always in synagogue because he's reminding us that Jesus has come as God's promised Messiah for the Jews first. The good news of Jesus is first for the Jews. It is for them. Jesus, by going through a synagogue, is reminding us that God has kept his word. We are all bad at keeping our word. We break them right, left, and center, especially to little children who don't understand the promises we're making. But God is not like that. We are little compared to him. We are like worse than little children. But he keeps his promise to us. When I think about how many promises I break my daughter, I think about how God is so faithful when I realize what a sinner I am and how holy and faithful he is. God keeps his promises. And we need to remember that in our own lives as we seek to trust him. So let's go back. Jesus has arrived. Let's read on verse 1. And again, he entered the synagogue. Jesus has arrived. We can picture him as he's entering, uh, that he's just about to take perhaps a seat in the synagogue. He's probably greeted everyone. He's just about to take a seat, and then he notices a strange-looking man. Let's read on verse 1. And a man was there with the withered 
and. Now, if you have another version of the Bible, say the NLT, uh, it says he had a deformed hand. Other versions say his hand was paralyzed or crippled. In short, the man is in a terrible situation. Uh, He's deformed. Now, as we think about that, in some sense, there's nothing unusual about that. We've seen lots of unwell people, and we're wondering why has Mark singled out this event. But I think Mark wants us to immediately see that this man is deformed on a day of rest, on the Sabbath. This man is deformed in the synagogue on the day of rest. The Sabbath in Israel has its roots in creation. When God created the world in six days, we are told he rested on the seventh day. What does that mean? Does God get tired? (laughs) Of course not. So how can God rest? Well, sometimes you rest from work, isn't it, when you're so happy with what you have done. So there are two ways to rest. Sometimes you just rest because it's too tired, you can't keep going on. Or sometimes you do something so perfectly that, well, there's nothing more to be done, so you just give it up and you, it's perfect and there's no improvement. Uh, if, even for a perfectionist, sometimes you just leave it. You are going to leave it. And that's what God did. God rested on the seventh day because he had created what? A perfect world. And that seventh day of rest actually is there to remind the people of Israel of God's goodness at creation. It's when they, whenever they, they observe the Sabbath, they are remembering what a perfect God they serve. What a perfect world he has made. But this is the problem, isn't it? Because this man is here on the day that reminds Israel of God's perfect creation. And he's not looking so perfect. He's deformed. And as we look at him and we think about the world God has made, Mark wants us to realize that the world is now broken by sin. It is broken by suffering. This man is in bad shape. It is a Saturday. It is a day of rest. It is a day that should remind us of God's perfect creation. And yet this man is not resting. This man is in difficult shape. This man is longing for a true Sabbath rest. You know, the word Sabbath means what? A deep rest or deep peace. That's what Sabbath means. Sometimes the word uh, the Bible uses for deep rest is shalom. Uh, Shalom is a state of wholeness. It means flourishing and prospering in every area of our lives. This man with the deformed hand... Wants that. We all want that. We all want true shalom. You want shalom in your inner life, don't you? You don't want restlessness in your heart. You want that peace that can withstand grief and loss. You want shalom in your relationship with others. You you don't want to be alone. You don't want to live alone and die alone, do you? You want to be bound by others in love. We all do. I do. You do. And we also know that deep down we cannot have this shalom on our own. 
Uh, we know deep down that we need help from outside. So all of us, everyone in the world, is reaching out outside to God to help us in this, in some way. Jeffrey Wilson says this, he says, Man, in his rebellion against his creator, remains incurably, incurably religious. And he seeks to satisfy this instinct by making his own deities, his own gods, so to speak. Wilson is reminding us that all of us have, have some religion of some sort to get us through life. All of us have some, some God that we hope can help us. If only we press the right buttons. And most people believe if God is there, we relate to him by being good people. That's what most people believe. And all religions, all religion, from atheism to whatever, are based on this principle. They just differ on practice. Some religions are nationalistic, aren't they? they? They tell us you connect to God by being born in a certain ethnic group or certain race or certain country. Some religions are spiritualistic. They tell us you reach out to this God by working your way up to a level of consciousness. Or as I hear it so many times in charismatic churches, you, you, you reach out to this God by having a special revelation of some sort that God impacts on you. You've you got to work your way up to that level of spirituality. And of course, some are regalistic, aren't they? Like the Pharisees we met this morning. They say you reach out to God by what? Following a code of conduct. A set of laws that you do. You tick the boxes and God is proud of you. Well, whatever, and you can say it, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> they say, just live for yourself. Worship yourself. That's all that matters. And that way you will get there. You see, whatever form such religion takes, the logic is the same. If I perform well, if I obey, if I tick all the right boxes as we said this morning, then my God will accept and bless me. That, that, that is the logic, isn't it, for all of this religion. But as we saw this morning and as we see in this passage, such religion is false. It cannot give us true rest. It does not lead to God. And that is our second observation in this passage. So the first observation is what? We all want true rest. And religion cannot give us true rest. It cannot. Let's rejoin Jesus in the synagogue there. So Jesus has spotted the man with the deformed hand. And Mark tells us in verse 2 there that the Pharisees have also spotted Jesus. He is under surveillance like a criminal suspect. Look at verse 2. And they watched Jesus intently there to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The Pharisees believe a person, healing a person on the Sabbath who is not knocking on death's door is work. So remember those 39 things we talked about in the morning? Well, healing a person who is not dying, which this man is not dying, breaks to them the fourth commandment. They've defined that as work as well, on top of walking 800 meters and doing other things and eating corn as it were. And Jesus knows what they are up to here. So all of that is ridiculous. But Jesus knows what they are up to here. 
And as, as you read this, you need to get into the text, you see. Because as you, as you reflect this, it looks like a setup here. As I read this, it looks like, we don't know, but to me it feels like they have planted the man there. They, they have almost set a grenade and they are hoping Jesus walks on it. Will Jesus walk on this grenade they have laid down there? Well, let's see. Uh, let's see in verse 3. Let's read on verse 3. It seems like he is. And he said to them, because he's noticed him, he said to the man in verse 3, the man with the withered hand, come here. So Jesus has called the man forward. But before Jesus heals the man here, he poses a question to his hidden enemies. Look at verse 4. And he said to them, that is the Pharisees, obviously, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus in the text is asking, what is the point of the Sabbath? Now, as I said, when I read Mark, I imagine being there. <laughs> I am feeling the tension in the room here as Jesus is speaking. Because we are taught, verse 4 ends, but they were silent. There is silence in the room. The Pharisees cannot answer the question Jesus is asking. He's asking, what is the point of the Sabbath? And they can't answer it. They can't answer it because they know that God has given the Sabbath, as we said this morning, as a gift. It is a gift for, that remembers His goodness and is there to aid our human flourish. So as Jesus thinks about this, as far as He's concerned, in God's design, it is not, listen to this, it is not only permissible to restore health on a Sabbath, it is the right thing to do. Because that is what the Sabbath is for. It is reminding us of this God's goodness. And here is God now. It is right for him to restore life. Or heal this man, so to speak. But the Pharisees are refusing to see this truth. Because verse 4, as I say, ends, but they were silent. And we can imagine being there. The silence in the room all of a sudden infuriates Jesus. Because look at verse 5. And he looked at them, he looked around. He's looking at them, he's scanning around the synagogue with anger. Mark says, it's important you understand that Mark says, really what he's getting at, is that he's angry at them. The Pharisees, not just angry at their sin, but angry at them. You can almost say the wrath of Jesus at that moment is resting on them. And of course, as I thought about this text, I thought, Jesus is God, isn't it? He? he could just do like Thanos. They could disappear like that. Jesus is so angry, but he's not, he's not eliminating them at all. He's very angry at them. Why is he angry? Well, because the Pharisees are committing a great injustice to the man. That is the explanation here. He's angry because of what they are doing to this man. Remember as we said this morning, this box ticking of the Pharisees keeps other people enslaved. And now they, 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 run, they run this man remain like this for the sake of their box ticking. We might say they are climbing to God on top of this man's dead body, as it were. On top of this man's deformity. Theirs is a selfish 
religion. And as I thought about this passage, it reminded me that the good news of Jesus is also good news for the oppressed. The bottom of society. Jesus has come for them too. And true religion, biblical religion, stands against injustice. It doesn't go around debating it. And we see not only the anger of Jesus, we see also that this anger of Jesus, strangely, at the sin they are committing, is mixed with something else. Grief. Let's read on verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. This word for grieved here is found only here in the New Testament. It's only found here, this word that is used here for grief. It is conveying deep sorrow. We might say that at this moment that Jesus is angry with them, is at the same time also broken for what sin has done to the Pharisees. You see, Jesus loves them, even though they are working very hard to oppose him. If you are a follower of Jesus this evening, this reaction of Jesus should challenge you. As I thought about this passage, it crushed me at many levels over the past week. Because it's telling me that if you are a follower of Jesus, you must react the way Jesus reacts here. And if you have all of Jesus, you have people in your life who are opposing you in many areas of your life. I don't just mean certain, real people. Followers of Jesus always have people that make their life difficult for them. Now, you may be surprised about that. But for a start, you have the government, don't you? Opposing you very hard in your work. And for some of you, it's more deeper than that. At the moment I mentioned that, you probably thought of someone, perhaps at work, that just hates you being a Christian. But rather, actually, you are working somewhere else. Perhaps you thought of someone in your family that just, they don't hate you, but they are not working for your faith in Christ. It might be a neighbor. Satan's just seem to send them to ruin every time you, you open the gate of the garden or something. I said we have national leaders. But also we have Christians, don't we? We have Christians who are opposing us in different ways. They judge us like the Pharisees. They've got that clipboard thing. They're not working for our goodness in Christ. They're busy trying to tear us down. As I thought about this passage, I thought... I thank God Jesus is angry (laughs) at them. Because it reminds me that it is okay, actually, to be angry at people for a moment. There's something wrong if we see sin in the country and we're not angry at the Prime Minister for allowing some of the policies or whoever you think is responsible. But at the same time, this passage says, ask me a question, are you grieved for them? So you are angry at those, you know, for a season, 
But are you grieved for people who are opposing you? Are you heartbroken for that colleague who does not want to talk to you? Are you deeply saddened for the spiritual condition of that person who has done you wrong in the past? Do you ask God for a deep love as Jesus does have here? Friends, we, it's not just anger. We, it's right to be angry at those who have done us wrong. And we should commit them to the Lord. But we should also have grief for our enemies. Are you grieved for your enemies? See, what Jesus is doing here is difficult. But it also fills me with hope, doesn't it? I, I don't know about you. I, I can't speak for you. I can say I want to be like Jesus. That's my goal in life, to be like Jesus. I love him. I want to be like him. And, but, and as I look at this, I can say, I know Jesus can help me grieve in a, for my enemies. And so this passage tells me I must come to Jesus, ask me to teach me how to be rightly angry at sin, and ask Jesus to give me the love that he has for his enemies. And beloved, I want to say Jesus can do the same for you this evening. So whatever difficult opponents you have, go to Jesus and receive his help. And this grief of Jesus, amazingly enough, is also pointing us to an important truth. Notice, why is Jesus grieved at them? For the same reason he's angry at them, actually. Which is, Jesus is grieved at them because they, for them because they are holding on to religion when Jesus is right in front of them. Friends, I can't emphasize more. I speak to people sometimes. And I'm like, if only I can shake Jesus into you, if I only I can make you see, He is the only thing you need. And it grieves you, doesn't it? Because after shaking them well, spiritually, you still can't get Jesus in. And this is what Jesus is grieved about that because he's looking at them and saying, Look, I am all you need. I am all you need. Not these laws you keep going on about. He says the gift of God is right in front of you. And that is our final truth, isn't it? The, the, the first truth is we all want rest, true rest. And we've seen that religion cannot give us true rest. He hasn't done it for the Pharisees. Well, true rest is only found where? In the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only found in Jesus. So we left Jesus there in this fight, frozen in the middle of his emotions, so to speak. Let's rejoin him. Let's play prayer play. Matt tells us, uh, goes on to tell us that Jesus now turns to the man with the deformed hand. Let's read uh, verse 5. And he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. There is no fanfare here. (laughs) No waving of hands in the air. Only three words in the original language. Four in English. Stretch out your hand. And it is done. The man is healed. And as expected, the conflict takes a deadly plunge. Let's read on verse 6. 
Immediately as the man is healed, we're told in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. That is Jesus. How to destroy him. The Pharisees are bad enough now. And they are uniting with their usual enemies, the Herodians. The Herodians are, the, are a political group. And they are uniting with them and to put Jesus to death, essentially. Let's work out how we can put him to death. As I thought about this, I thought, here we have religious leaders, and here we have a political faction. They don't even, they're religionists, we might say. But they are combining, aren't they? These two forces represent the forces that the church faces, that you face in your life. Extreme atheists here, I guess, they might say the Herodians are. And massive religious people on the front. Enemies of Jesus are combining. You see, friends, we should know that nothing unites forces of evil more than the opportunity to oppose Jesus. And I, I say this, nothing would unite other, other enemies in your life than knowing that you are a believer. People don't even talk to one another. <laughs> Find new unity to oppose the church in this world. And as a follower of Jesus, you therefore expect opposition wherever you are. So we have a man here, though, don't we? To summarize, we have a man here with a deformed hand. He's healed by Jesus. Where is he healed? At a place of worship. When is he healed? He's healed on the day of rest. What happens when he's healed? His healing now hastens the death of Jesus. It will lead to the cross. Why is Mark taught, why has Mark taught us all of this? Why well, is reminding us, you see, that none of this is by accident. Mark is saying the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed in chapter 1 brings true and deep shalom through the death of Jesus. That's why you have these four things. The deformed man, the day of rest, the Sabbath, and the plot to kill Jesus after the healing. Because Mark is telling us, Jesus, the kingdom of God is bringing, will bring true rest only through his death on the cross. You see, the history of Israel is a story of God's people seeking deep rest. You remember when we looked through Judges, we said when God saved Israel out of Egypt, he did what? He promised to give them rest, didn't he? So he led them into the land of Canaan. And we saw in Judges, as they got into Canaan, Israel never enjoyed rest. Twelve judges, no rest. And it even just got, gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then we noted that the rejection of God's kingship was responsible, so to speak, for their failure to have this rest. But we said that God had always actually planned that, strangely enough. His sovereign providence was that he always had a plan. This was all part of his plan. So that God himself could come in the person of Jesus and establish a new covenant by his blood that brings in true rest through Jesus. And the writer of the Hebrews speaks to this. Uh, Turn with me to Hebrews 4, chapter 8 to verse 11. Our last reference. It says this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8 to 11. The writer of the Hebrews says this about Joshua. He says this, for if Joshua had given them rest, that is the people of Israel, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, 
there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that the, the rest God promised is fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, to enjoy that rest, we must come to Jesus. If you like, the good news of Jesus is that if you're trusting in his death on the cross for your sins, you have already entered God's rest. You have received true rest, true Sabbath rest. Are you resting in Jesus? Well, someone might say, well, I kind of think I am, but how come I still have so many problems if I've received this deep rest you're talking about? Uh, sometimes I get sick. I, frankly, Chola, right now I'm struggling with some serious sin. I, I'm very worried about my future. Have I really received true rest? I'm trusting in Jesus, but I don't feel like I'm resting. In fact, I look at this man here with a deformed hand. Are you resting? Yes, if you're trusting in Jesus. Because remember what we said at the beginning of Mark. Today's like a review thing for Mark. Remember what we said, the kingdom of God is both the now and the not yet. Right now you have shalom with God. Jesus is in you. You have life now. But there is also the not yet to your shalom. The full blessings of your true rest in Jesus are not yet here until Jesus comes again. There is the age to come. One day you have a new physical body. And as I like to say, I can't wait personally. <laughs> One day you have a perfect character. Imagine that, some of you. One day you have new relationships. Not with people that disappoint us. People we can trust, glorious brethren in the heavenly assembly. You will live in a new world one day with no suffering, no pain, uh, no Brexit to worry about. You will live with Jesus face to face. And the Bible says that one day wipe away our tears. And I always say that's wonderful, isn't it? Because Jesus himself coming to me, wiping me out. That's so intimate. I love that. I'll be with the Lord of glory. That's the future we've been promised. And here's the amazing thing as you think about the not yet. Knowing that what you have waiting, the shalom that's also to come, should encourage you to enjoy the rest now that you already have. Imagine if next time you face opposition at work, you remember that you are the glorious eternal kingdom that awaits you. What your boss says doesn't matter, does it now? Imagine next time you received the bad news in the family that rocked your rest. You remember that you had a glorious future rest ahead of you. You approached that difficulty differently, wouldn't you? Your life, as you think about that future rest, will become a celebration of God's future rest. And therefore, you bring that future rest in the here and now. And the good news of this passage is that being with Jesus brings rest that begins now. And we enjoy that rest. In the same way we 
we talked about this morning, we enjoy by being by recognizing that we are already accepted by Jesus. Recognize that we already have rest with Jesus. That we have the peace of God and the peace with God. If you like, this true rest is not something we work to. It's just something we receive and accept. Once we accept that we are loved in the beloved, we'll begin to grow in rest. So enjoying true rest means not worrying about what the world thinks of you. Yes, the world may have good reason to consider you a loser. The world may unfairly call you stupid. But none of that matters, justified or not justified. What matters is that Jesus accepts you. Enjoying true rest means accepting it's not about how you feel, but what Jesus says. Yes, you feel spiritually deformed. But what does Jesus say? He says, come here. I love that. I love what he says in verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Come here. That's what Jesus has said to you, hasn't it? And you have come to him. You have stepped out in faith. You have turned your back on trying to end his love. You are resting on his love. And resting on his love means it's not about how you feel, but about what Jesus says, isn't it? Sometimes we feel lonely and worthless. But what does Jesus say in his word? He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He says, I have drawn you with loving kindness. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. The good news of Jesus is the good news of true rest now. So if you've truly surrendered to Jesus, stop running. I mean, we've had two sermons on this this morning, and I appreciate you've heard some of the stuff again. But I can't repeat. I can't, I can't stop myself repeating. Stop running. Start resting. And start by coming before Jesus to thank him for this amazing rest we have in him. And ask him to help you grow in resting more and more in him. Well, may the Lord bless the preaching of his word. And may we all grow in resting in Christ. Amen.